1947. The Straits of Malacca. Whilst a world away, a weather balloon's crash in New Mexico will change the face of extraterrestrial life forever, here in the South China Sea, trade continues as it has done for centuries, perhaps millennia. These are some of the most prominent and profitable shipping waters in the world. They've seen their fair share of unsavory incidents, too, between pirates, sickness, and the all-too-recent island hopping of the Second World War. The Japanese occupation took its toll on Indonesia and Malaysia. Once Dutch and British colonies, at this time they exist in a state of limbo with their independences, a matter of, shall we say, intense debate. For now, as the Dutch East Indies and Malaya, their main focus is the decolonization efforts that many second and third world countries were undergoing at the time, as well as rebuilding to try and forget the horrors of the Japanese imperial administrations. Two American ships are traversing the Straits one starry night, the city of Baltimore and the Silver Star, both with their own shipping routes, cargoes, and objectives. They're not alone. They pass many other ships in this waterway, as it's a vital lifeline for the economies of the countries and colonies of the East, as much as it is a profitable trade route for the West. The radio operator on the Silver Star is nursing a cup of coffee. It's the middle radio watch, which means he's up at the small hours of the morning, hailing nearby vessels and checking for any information that might be prudent to know or to share. He's got a strange camaraderie with the other radio operators who are up at this time. From his comm rooms, and from theirs, it's basically him and them out in the dark, open ocean. Sometime in the night, a message comes in in Morse code. It's strange and garbled and panicked, and when the translation is read out, a shiver runs down the spine of the radio man. SOS from Orang Medan. We float. All officers, including the captain, dead in chart room and on the bridge. Probably whole of crew dead. It takes a moment for this to be processed, but when it does, the alarm is sounded and the captain awoken and summoned to the comms room. Despite Orang Medan being a Dutch ship by all signs, and the Silver Star an American ship, they're all sailors together, and in these waters, 38 kilometers at the narrowest points of the straits, they could disappear without a trace if the Silver Star doesn't act fast. However, moments later, another message comes through, one that could well haunt the men reading it. After a few minutes of garbled, incoherent Morse code, two clear words. I die. And then, silence. The crew of the Silver Star are shaken. No more word was heard after that. But they had a duty to any survivors. After all, even if the radio operator had, in fact, perished as he had said he did, there may be others on board that need their help. So they diverted course and eventually, after hours of searching, they found their objective, the SS Urang Medan. But when they boarded the ship, what they found was almost beyond words. The entire crew, including a ship's dog, was dead. But not only that, they were all lying on their backs, faces frozen in expressions of pure fear, teeth bared, eyes wide, to a man they were terrified, as though they had all died of fright. Their radio man had at least been able to transmit the fateful final messages and had died with his hands on the Moors keys. The crew were little more than perverse caricatures of people at this point, faces and bodies twisted, a ghastly sight to behold. The exploration of the ship yielded little in the way of answers. Did they smell something? Feel a little... light-headed, perhaps. In the darkness, their eyes played tricks on them, but seems as though something is moving in the corners of their eyes. All the while, the creaking of the ship, 
nestled in an eerie dead silence, is enough to drive any man to a breaking point. What killed these men? If they died of fright, what could be so terrifying that it struck them all down? And that final message, I die, was confounding. Here lay the radio man at his station and whatever had killed him had done so slowly enough to allow him to pen his final message. So then maybe he didn't die of fright in one instant as the others had, but if so, how did he meet his fate? Nothing more could be done for the crew of the Orang Medan, but surely their families would want closure and the Dutch government would appreciate the cargo salvaged, so the Silver Star prepared to line her up to be towed into port in Sumatra. Then, smoke. A fire had broken out in one of the Orang Medan's cargo holds and the Silver Star's crew evacuated post-haste. After pushing off to a safe distance, the Orang Medan suddenly and violently exploded. Whatever the fire had caught had had some potency and consigned its crew and cargo to a watery grave. The ship was almost flung off the surface of the sea with the violence of the blast, but when it hit the waves it sunk down for good, and all that was left of that macabre scene was bubbles in the wake. The Silver Star carried on its way, taking with it only the memory of a ship long lost. It's a chilling tale to be sure, but did it actually happen? Details are scarce and sketchy where they can be found, and whilst the Orang Medan is a tall tale for the ages, its veracity is another matter entirely. The details are difficult to solidly pin down. Was it 1947? Or 1948? Or even 1940 during the war? The ship was Dutch, wasn't it? So why doesn't it appear on any Dutch registries? And it did sink, so why has no one ever found the wreckage? Between the library's worth of shipping manifests, logbooks, apocrypha, and the dedicated research of a handful of interested parties, we can delve into the details of this story to try and pass some truth from it. And with my own frantic searching of letters to the CIA, notes from the meetings of merchant marines, decolonization in post-war Asia, and some strange chemical compounds, I've derived some rather interesting conclusions to this mystery, all the while aided by the research of an old sailor with a similar desire to get to the bottom of this sea story. So, today, we look into the fact, and the fiction, of the story of the Dutch ship of death, the SS Orang Medan. Today on Demystified, we look at the haunting tale of the SS Orang Medan, an apocryphal story of a ghost ship turned shipwreck in the waters of the Straits of Malacca. Now, it's a bit of a funny topic for this show, because strictly speaking, I'm not 100% certain even now having written the episode as to whether we can say there's any full truth to the matter. Last week, I went into detail about the things that I can prove with evidence and the things that I can't, and as a result, I almost didn't do this topic. But after doing some digging and a deep dive into the research of several individuals, including one Roy Bainton, a British maritime historian, I think I've got enough to go on to at least weigh in on the debate as to the facts behind what I initially suspected to be total fiction. First off, though, what's in Orang Medan when it's at home? Well, it's Indonesian and or Malay for Man from Medan, or Man of Medan. Medan is the biggest city on the island of Sumatra. The ship was supposedly a Dutch vessel, which makes sense given it was, at the time, been laid down and registered in the area that was part of the Dutch East Indies and thus would be a Dutch colony. You may recognise the etymology there of Orangutan from the same root, meaning forest person or man of the jungle. 
Now, in terms of whether this was a real ship that we can prove existed, that's not super clear. There was an SS Medan under Dutch registry, but that ship got scrapped before the Second World War. So, no Orang Medan? Well, the details get even more sketchy. To add to our confusion, I've seen at least three different tellings of this story. The first one was the one that I dramatized. Straits of Malacca, 1947. Ship goes down with all hands, and they died in a gruesome fashion beforehand. Another telling of it, however, puts the location 400 nautical miles southeast of the Marshall Islands, which, if you look on a map or a globe, is absolutely nowhere near the Straits of Malacca. This version has there be one survivor who dies later, an unnamed German who tells the story to an Italian missionary who tells one Silvio Scherli of Trieste, Italy. That version of the story appeared in a Dutch periodical from Indonesia in a several-part instalment in 1948, with a disclaimer that while Shirley maintained the story to be true, no facts to back it up could be established. In this account, the Oran Medan was transporting sulfuric acid from China to Costa Rica, and it got loose and killed the crew via poisonous fumes. But wait, there's more! Another variation comes from the Daily Mirror and Yorkshire Evening Post in 1940, for those counting at seven years before the first story even took place, also supposedly originating with one Silvio Shirley from Trieste, they quoted Associated Press as a source, and claimed the events took place near the Solomon Islands. So what's the deal? Are any of these accounts factual, or maybe none of them? If we have stories from 1940, does that disprove the later stories? Well, slow down, because we're going to have to take a big step back and assess some of our sources here. So, the work of maritime historian Roy Bainton was invaluable in looking into this topic. After attempting to find anyone with information on the story of the Orang Medan, he was contacted by Professor Theodor Seisdorfer of Essen, Germany, who was able to lend a hand. Seisdorfer had spent decades attempting to crack the secrets of this bizarre tale. One of the biggest successes in the research was establishing the identities of the two ships that supposedly received the distress signal, the city of Baltimore and the Silver Star, both American vessels. Now, most of the details of the Silver Star's voyage are contained in a strange German booklet written in 1954 by an Otto Milke, Das Totenschiff in der Zutzi, the death ship in the South Sea. Milke seems to know a lot about the Orang Medan's possible route and cargo, but doesn't give any other detailed sources, which is weird because his details, including tonnage, engine power, and captain's name, are all thoroughly referenced. Professor Zierdsdorfer also mentions another marine detective, someone called Alvar Masten, a German who lived in England in the 50s, who attempted to get details from Grace Lines, who owned the Silver Star, in New York of the crew list of the logbook, but wasn't able to. Thus, the possible fact remains that the Silver Star crew did really board the Orang Medan in, as Milke has it, June 1947, and that this was the route via which the story entered nautical legends, and yet we're no closer because Lloyds of London ship registration shows that at that time, Silver Star had changed owners and was going by a new name, Santa Cecilia. So the plot thickens and then thins again. What follows is some interesting history, pure speculation by Bainton about the fate of the Orang Medan based on the stories, but giving a possible and plausible theory to the grim and ghastly tale. Now, you see, it all has to do with the chemicals on board the Orang Medan, allegedly. You see, Milka recorded the cargo as being nitroglycerin, a volatile explosive component, and potassium cyanide, a horrifically deadly poison. How this cargo would ever go unnoticed by authorities would be mind-boggling, given that even in the 1940s, such a consignment would merit a king's ransom in official stamps. Still, according to Albert Speer, Hitler's pet architect and one of the few Nazis to survive the war and the trials, 
As well as using Zyklon B in the gas chambers of the Holocaust, the Nazi scientists cooked up a particularly nasty gas called Tabun, which could puncture gas masks and was effectively what today we would consider a nerve agent. Now, for the record, with the details of this other story, Tabun gas is a real thing. It was effectively the precursor to sarin gas, and part of Speer's being let off for his role in the Third Reich was apparently he had attempted to kill Hitler using the gas, which didn't pan out. Aside from the Nazis, though, the Japanese Empire were the only other power researching and using Tabun gas. Now, this next bit gets a little bit graphic, so if you're squeamish, turn away now. A Japanese military branch called Unit 731 was established in occupied Manchuria and conducted some of the most appalling war crimes ever perpetrated by mankind, mostly involving human experimentation to try and find chemical and biological weapons capable of winning the war. The fact that most of these war criminals got away with what they did by selling their findings to the United States in exchange for amnesty, most of which was total bunkum anyway, is one of the great injustices of all of history. But alongside things like the bubonic plague, Tabun gas was one of the candidates for the research. And I mentioned earlier that there was a lively debate for the independence of Indonesia and Malaysia, and Singapore, but theirs is an interesting story, being the only country to ever become independent against their will. That wasn't being entirely accurate. Diplomatically, that was the case. But on the ground, there were bitter civil wars going on, revolutions for independence that pitted local nationalist groups against military occupations. You see, in Indonesia, they weren't too pleased to have been left to the Japanese, and when the Dutch rocked back up, expecting to be welcomed back in with open arms, the locals took their chance and resisted. Whilst the military actions would largely lead to stalemates, the international pressure led to Indonesia becoming independent in 1949. Malaysia, for its part, was being restructured by the British, and would go through a brutal jungle war between the Commonwealth-backed Federation of Malaysia and the communist insurgents sponsored by Indonesia, China and the Soviets. In the end, though, it wouldn't become a fully-fledged country for a while. What this all meant, though, was that despite rumours that there was a Japanese cache of Tabun gas being stockpiled in Singapore, nothing could really be done about it because the British were busy rebuilding and trying to keep Malaysia non-communist and the Indonesians were fighting to overthrow the Dutch on the other side of the strait. Here, Bainton argues, the Tabun gas gets spirited away on the Orang Medan. At that time, nerve agents were being snatched up by all sorts of would-be dictators, repressive regimes and governments and groups with malintentions. It was illegal under international law to make or sell the stuff, so this consignment was a hot commodity in more ways than one. The cargo was stored in oil barrels for maximum stealth, but they sealed badly and the gas got out, brutally killing the crew. This still leaves a major question as to what caused the explosion, but if we take that account of nitroglycerin in the cargo hold, then there's your answer, champ. Now, Bainton himself was a merchant mariner and first heard the story of the Orang Medan in 1961, and he heard it again and again in mess halls and ports across the world. That's partly why he was so interested in getting to the bottom of it in his later career as an historian. He was actually contacted by the Dutch Navy for his research into this case, because the British Ministry of Defence had for some reason destroyed all records of poison gas dumps from 25 years prior to the writing of the article of his that I'd read from 1999. At the end of the Second World War, the Royal Navy had loaded hundreds of thousands of tons of sarin gas and tabun gas into ships and sunk them deliberately to keep them from being used or resold or stolen. As it turned out, this went rather badly, and in 1998, some Swedish fishermen dragged up a barrel of mustard gas canisters and were hospitalised. So, the Dutch wanted to track down the possibility that a ship of theirs had, in fact, been carrying a boatload of toxic nerve agents and had sunk somewhere to prevent a diplomatic snafu like that from happening again. But here's where the facts end, such as we ever had them. Much of what I just read was speculation, based on good evidence and good theorising, for example, 
Tabun gas was real, the Japanese did produce it. It did used to be smuggled in the post-war era. There was sufficient turmoil in order to produce the circumstances needed for that to possibly be an explanation for the Orangbadan. But the actual evidence that it's based on, whether the ship was real, whether the ships that found it were real, is based on things that are thin on the ground. A lot of the facts of the case come from a document published by the US Coast Guard called Proceedings of the Merchant Marine Council, supposedly published in May of 1954, but after some strenuous googling, which unveiled of all things a meeting of the Hong Kong Merchant Marine Council of that month of that year, I couldn't find it. So what does that tell us? Perhaps the facts to this case aren't quite as solid as they might have appeared. But stick around, because it ain't over till the fat lady sings. Some theories I've seen blame the Americans. As represented in the 2018 video game Man of Medan, a horror game based on this story, the idea is that the Americans wanted the poisonous gas, which in the game is also hallucinogenic, thus explaining the fearful expressions of the crew, and so used an inconspicuous Dutch steamer to circumnavigate the diplomatic issue of transporting illegal cargo on a US naval vessel. This could tie in with the real history of the US rug sweeping of Unit 731 and the pardoning of Japanese war criminals. Is it really such a stretch to believe that they'd not also try and steal away a cargo of deadly nerve agents to be used through a proxy? I think that's why the story persisted. As Bainton put it, quote, Why was it common currency in the mess rooms of the old tramp steamers I sailed in the 1960s, and why were other real ships involved in the yarn? End quote. I think it's because the intertwining of real history with a story too exciting to be dismissed that people, including sailors, perpetuated the myth. It's the perfect combination, isn't it? An international conspiracy, the setting of the chaos of post-war East Asia, combined with the fear and tragedy that comes with open waters, a chilling detail of the frozen fear of the dead crew, all wrapped up with just enough real-life detail that we're tantalised by the story. This isn't like the Mary Celeste in the sense that it was a verifiable historical fact, or the Bermuda Triangle in that it's just total blarney. It's a blending of the real-life facts of Taibun gas, Japanese war crimes, along with some genuine ships and sailors, with the myth of the ghost ship, the chilling nature of those sorts of haunting sea stories, and a cautionary tale of what happens when you cut corners for evil motivations. So, was the Orang Medan real? In my personal opinion, probably. But when I say that it was probably real, take that with some pretty major caveats. I do think there was a real-life ship that inspired this tall tale. I don't think the crew were all found dead with expressions of pure terror. I don't buy some of the more fantastical details, such as the almost intentionally cryptic and vague and terrifying Morse code messages. At the same time, though, I can't see how a story like this could be entirely made up. Too much of it is based on real historical facts, like apparently the Silver Star and the Japanese use in stockpiling for Tabun gas, and the whole story is, to me, just too close to being real to be dismissed as wholly fictitious. It's like a puzzle for which you don't have all the pieces and you don't have the box. I see the image forming. The more sensible in my group say it's a landscape scene. The more excitable say it's a dragon. My brain tells me it's the former, but my heart is excited about the possibility that it's the latter. And in a rare turn of logical fallacy, I don't have enough information to dismiss the notion. While the smart thing to do would be just to say, non-existent until proven real, I think that there is just enough here to justify an extremely tentative belief 
that the story of the Orang Medan might be based on a real event. Again, with the more spurious details, I'm more than happy to dispose of for the sake of rationality. After all, I am doing this podcast to shed light on these historical mysteries with real evidence. On the other hand, why do we read up on these weird and lurid tales? Because they're exciting. Part of us wants it to be real, because it's far more interesting than the probable truth of it being greatly exaggerated at best and totally fictitious at worst. So maybe that's today's lesson. That so long as you've found your belief on a bed of evidence and don't take things too far, it's okay to suspend your disbelief for a while, to engage with the strange and fantastical tales that run throughout history. Oh, and one more detail to cap this story off. In 1959, a letter was sent by Mr. C. H. Mark Jr. of Scottsdale, Arizona, to a Mr. John Foster Dulles. For those of you keen on your American history, at the time, John Foster Dulles was the director of the CIA. In this letter, Mark retold the story of the Umrang Madan as he'd heard it, and asked the recipient whether they'd believed the story concerned, quote, something from the unknown. The letter was published in 2003 with its recipient redacted, but the response published the previous year established that it was sent to the CIA and dismissive responses say that it was sent on behalf of Mr. Dulles. So does this tell us anything? Well, Arizona isn't coastal, so either Mark was an ex-sailor or your average Joe US citizen in 1959 had heard of the Orang Medan and was curious. Moreover, it tells us that Mr. Mark thought that the CIA might know something about it. Ring any bells, as we have the US government interacting with Japanese war criminals not 14 years prior? It also tells us that the CIA didn't care for those suggestions. Not surprising, but I'll let you be the judge as to whether Mark was onto something, or was as lost as a ship in the fog. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded and produced by me, Ashley Stiles, with hosting from Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.